If you have the standard issue 5.5 by 9 ESV Bible that everyone at New St. Peter's carries, they're a page apart, so you can flip back and forth very quickly. But I'm going to read them in reverse order as they appear in your Bible. I'll read Ephesians 4 first and then go to Galatians 5. As we listen to Paul's urging to the churches in Ephesus and Galatia about how they should walk with Jesus. This is the good news as Paul held it out and preached it and encouraged the church with it. And the Spirit uses it this morning to encourage us as we celebrate together. Picking up in Ephesians 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And if you'll flip back to Galatians 5, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against those of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against those of the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in sharp contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You join me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace to us. You who have given us Jesus, Your only begotten Son, to live and die and rise for us, to be our incarnate Savior, to take on our humanity and to live obediently in our place, to minister to us by His Spirit. You have given Him freely to us. You have lavished Your grace on us as we read earlier in our liturgy. You wash us with the pure water of Your Spirit. You enlighten us and reveal Yourself to us through Your Word and through Your grace at work and on display in Your church. You knit us together in the perfect bond of unity and peace by the work of Your Spirit. We ask that You would continue these things to us this morning, that You would continue these things in us until we see the work of Your grace complete. When we see Jesus face to face, when we eat and drink His feast in His kingdom, when we see the curse undone and redemption complete, when we see the fruit of Your grace 
in full bloom and beauty. We ask that you would do these things for us, that you would confirm our hope, that you would make us all the more eager for these things. Do these things for your glory and for our good as the sons and daughters that you have adopted. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I titled this sermon, One Last, for a number of reasons. And the biggest reason is that every paragraph that Kara and I utter in the last several weeks seems to have this little phrase in it. We had one last trip to the Arboretum. Yesterday I went to one last crawfish boil. Had one last lunch appointment, one last party. This week I'm actually going to have one last doctor's appointment, one last filling at the dentist, and one last haircut with the guy that I trust. All week I have told myself this morning I'm going to have my one last taco at Torchy's for breakfast. And we've even done things that we've never done before in the name of one last. Tonight we're going out to dinner with neighbors of ours that we've always meant to go to dinner with at a restaurant we've always meant to go to, but we've never done it. So in the grand tradition of Job and Michael from Arrested Development going to the lake house, we're going for one first last time. As I was walking into church and past the visitor's table, Julie Hickman told me that I had never used her name in a sermon And so there is one first last time, Julie. (laughs) To Steve Bagby and Annie Leach and John Berger, we've had this ongoing discussion about who could theologically use the phrase, mo' money, mo' problems. I have never found a place for it, but this was my one first last time to do it. And last week, when I sat in worship with Kara and our kids and thought about the nine years that we have spent in this church, knowing many of you longer than we've known our oldest son, Walker, I cried like a baby. We got to the end of the service, and I couldn't get the words out to sing the songs. I couldn't read the parting liturgy. I'm not afraid to cry in front of people. I don't think it's unmanly, but I just thought, I can't function. I'm going to slobber and drool and get snot on people. I've got to stop. And so I actually offered Brian Welch $10 to say A.A. Ron from the pulpit. And I didn't think he would do it. I actually have notes in my sermon that I would acknowledge it as something he didn't do because his level head prevailed, but instead his kindness to me prevailed and he did it. And I'm hoping that will see me through. But I do count it a high privilege to address you one last time. But not because God's grace has given me an open mic for nostalgia or private experience where I can wax eloquent about all of the things that we have done in the church together, what our life has been like, the fond memories and the funny stories. By God's grace, He has given me one more time to celebrate with you face to face the unmistakable goodness to us that He has shown by His Spirit and to proclaim to you and with you the excellencies of Christ. Not for a last time, but probably for a last time face-to-face for a while. We're not being separated permanently, but it is a slightly longer drive if you want to see us a few weeks from now. 
And so I thought in my one last address, I would spend time in Ephesians 4 and Galatians 5 focusing on the things that Paul says to the church are the one last things that you need. And they're the one last things that you have. As Colin continues through Hebrews, you will hear over and over that Jesus is the one last redeemer, the one last hope, the one last priest, the one last sacrifice. Your worship is now full as the one last culminating worship of God's people. And Paul uses those same ideas, though with a different argument in these passages. And I thought this would be a fitting place for us to celebrate Jesus' goodness to us this morning. So if you like outlines, I've given you a short outline in the back of your bulletin. The first question I have for you, the first question I ask myself when I read this passage is, what is is worthy of our calling? If Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, is he giving you the parental be-on-your-best-behavior speech? Is he reading you the riot act the way we do when we send our kids to spend the night with grandparents? Is he giving them the I'll-be-watching-you line? Or is it something different? Paul's statements throughout Ephesians 4 give us a glimpse of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Even in the passage I read at the beginning of chapter 4, he gives you a little picture of what this looks like when he uses these descriptions with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with each other in love. But it's not a to-do list. These aren't things to cultivate on your own. These aren't ends in themselves. These are short descriptions of what he really means by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Through the passage, he just ends up talking about Jesus. In fact, where I stopped reading, that's where he's ended. He's moved on from those descriptions of what their walk will look like in all humility, gentleness, and love. And he just started talking about Jesus, but it's not a digression. This is where he was headed all along. When he says to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, he's describing your calling. Paul was exhorting them, and the Holy Spirit is exhorting us this morning toward the calling of Christ's likeness. And I don't just mean Christ's similarity. I mean by the mysterious work of His grace actually bearing the image and likeness of the Christ that we love. The Savior who has borne our afflictions and loved us perfectly and condescended to us and embraced us and befriended us and called us brothers and sisters. If you look at verses 13 and 24 in chapter 4, Paul makes it explicit. You're supposed to do these things, maintain this unity until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, mature humanity, which he defines as the measure and stature and the fullness of Christ. 
In 24, he says they're supposed to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The calling of which they are supposed to walk worthily is a calling to recreation in Christ-likeness, bearing His image, growing up to be more like Him by the grace of God. And that is what God has in store for all of us. To that end, He has given them one of each of the following. He's given them one body. There is one spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul urges them to be eager to maintain a peaceful unity by dependence on the Spirit because they're already unified. They already share these things because there are only, there is only one of each of these. There is only one body of the church, only one body of Christ, one corporate community of faith united by grace and transformation of the Spirit. There's only one Spirit of God that ministers to all of us. There's only one hope. We all worship one Lord. The faith that we declare, though we might say it differently, and we might haggle over details... Is really just one faith for the Christian church. There are not multiple gospels. There is only one real faith. There is only one real baptism. Only one God who embraces us as Father through Christ. And so we have this one God, this one Redeemer, one kingdom, one gospel to preach. We have one ministry, not just in this theater, but we who are united by the Spirit over the globe and through the centuries have one ministry with one Savior to proclaim, one hope to which we cling, one godly image to bear in the end. And so we will miss you, and we love you dearly, but we are not leaving your ministry for our ministry. We are not leaving your Savior for our Savior. We are following our singular Jesus to proclaim and live in His singular redemption, to enjoy His singular ministry, I was actually thinking about this yesterday at the crawfish boil. I told you I wasn't going to wax nostalgic, but I'm going to do this very quickly. I was at the crawfish boil at the Howard's home, and they probably don't remember this, but I was watching Lily Howard play with my children as they were creating a habitat inside a cooler for the few crawfish that we weren't eating. And I was watching them play, and it dawned on me that Lily Howard was actually my first baptism. And I enjoyed that. It was a sweet picture of our covenant children playing together and enjoying each other's company. 
Not just because we have a few affinities, not just because we love those crawfish, delicious brethren on the tables as Howard, as Will had spread them for us. We were actually knit together in this one faith and in this one redemption. And as we leave and enjoy baptism elsewhere, it won't be another baptism. There will be one baptism. We will go and enjoy the baptism that we have together. The difference will be in Portland. The, fl- the water will be unfluoridated. Which, had you been real Portlanders, you would have applauded. <laughs> but we're not leaving your ministry We're not leaving the grace that we have enjoyed together. The scenery will be different. The Savior will be the same. And so, as we are sad to leave, that gives us great comfort and joy to celebrate actually with you on Sunday mornings in worship, whether we see you face to face or not. To sing praise to our one God, to enjoy... His goodness to us as He showers His goodness on you. Because we're still one body, whether we share a zip code or not. So now flip over the one page to Galatians 5. In all of this walking worthily, in all of this moving along by God's grace toward Christ's likeness. Paul explains to the Galatians how they ought to walk, what that actually looks like, not just what the end is, not their destiny of Christ's likeness, though that is true and what pulls them forward to it, but actually how they'll get there. He says that they will do it by walking by the Spirit, by the ministry and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them what this looks like. As much as the passage that I read might be overwhelming to you with the listing of sins, it might have sounded like a Seinfeldian airing of grievances, All of the things that are to be shunned and rejected and fought. Paul is not laying on the Galatians, and God is not laying on us new shackles. That walking by the Spirit will be somehow confining and constraining and a kind of miserable goodness. Paul says it's beautiful. Throughout the passage, he talks about this walking by the Spirit in terms of freedom. He opens chapter 5 with this statement, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand in that freedom and don't devote yourselves or submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. He's preaching real freedom and liberation to them. He picks it up again in verse 13. My brothers and sisters, you are called to freedom. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for sin. But through love, serve one another. 
The freedom that God gives us in the gospel is not free agency to self-determine what beauty is and what goodness is and who we ought to be and what our lives ought to look like. It's a freedom from the shackles of wrong belief and sin and the misery and pain of the curse that we all bemoan together. It's a freedom to pursue the Christ-likeness that God has created us for and that He draws us to by the work of His Spirit. Some older translations actually translate the passage I read, the, five, six, the verses 16 through 23, a little heavier. And instead of saying against the Spirit or these things are opposed to each other, they talk about these things being at war with each other. It's where our confessional language in chapter 13 of the Westminster Confession on sanctification, it's where that language is derived. That our struggle against sin arises as an irreconcilable war in this life. There are things that our hearts are drawn to. There are patterns that are so comfortable and familiar to us. And these things, the Spirit is scraping away and cutting off of us and setting us free from. And it's a war, but it's a war with freedom already established and won and promised and given. And you know this better than I can tell you from the pulpit. The war against sin, the war against doubt, the war against sickness and pain in the world and exploitation and abuse. Our war against these things is an ugly war, but it has beautiful results promised at the end. This is Jesus' war against brokenness in the world. It's a war with godly beauty as its trophy, and Christ, our victorious Savior, will have His trophy in us. As He continues the ministry of His Spirit, to let us enjoy more and more of our godly freedom, our liberation into godliness. And I picked these two passages to read to you because in the vein of Paul who urged the Ephesians to maintain a unity that they already have, Or in the vein of John the Apostle who wrote to his little children in the faith because they already knew and believed. I want to read and celebrate these passages with you and this truth of the gospel with you, not because these are things you don't possess, not because these are things that I see as deficient in you or things that I have been deprived of in your presence. I wanted to read these things and celebrate these things with you because I see a rich crop of the fruit of God's Spirit among all of you. You are beautiful saints, New St. Peter's. I love you. And I love you not in the abstract because Jesus loves you and so I have to. I love you not at a distance trusting that Jesus is at work in you and some of these things might come about later on. 
I love you up close and personally because I have benefited from and I have seen really and personally your beauty as saints. The Lord has been unmistakably kind to our church. Not just in pastors and elders and deacons, those those things are true, but in all of you. I have learned from you so much love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in the face of cruelty and gentleness in the face of harshness. I have seen you wrestle against temptation and I have seen self-control win out, not because your bootstraps are longer than others, but because your Savior is infinitely faithful. As John said in his instructions during our opening liturgy, I love you up close and personally because you have been a means of God's revelation to me that the gospel is true and His grace is at work and His Spirit is powerful and His promises are true. I have seen His beauty and the fruit of His Spirit in you. And so, thank you. Give thanks to God for His kindness to you. I love you all and Jesus loves you more. And as we travel to Portland and as we minister in Portland, we will celebrate weekly that we worship with you still, that we share one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all of us, poor, wretched people being made beautiful by His grace. I love you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your relentless grace that pursues us when we would not pursue it on our own, that changes our hearts, so that while we confess our sin to You, we continually hear more of Your pardon assured, more of the forgiveness that was won for us in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, more of the hope of transformation that comes to us by Your Spirit who ministers to us day and night bearing fruit in beautiful abundance. You give us all of these things, this love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control because these are how Christ lived among us, how He ministers to us now. By Your grace, You are making us beautiful as He is beautiful. Never to replace Him. Never to displace Him. Always to love Him more and enjoy the gifts that He gives and to enjoy His presence more and more as we see His grace worked out in our midst. 
Would you be kind to us and minister to us as we come together to eat and drink at His table? As we share the one loaf and the one cup because we have one Savior and we have been knit together corporately as His one body to belong to each other as family. Oh, Father, we ask these things of You with confidence because You've promised them to us and Your promises are sure and because You've confirmed Your promises to us over and over and over again as we have seen You at work. Father, we thank You for all of these things, not because our beauty is an end in itself. It is just a dim reflection of the beauty we see in You and the Son and the Spirit. And it's Your glory that does us good, and it's Your love that draws us in to share Your glory and enjoy You forever. Would You give us all these things more richly and deeply, day by day and year over year, until we see Jesus face to face once and for all. We ask these things of you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.